morning we'll be looking at the end of chapter 1 of Paul's letter to Titus, specifically at verses 10 through 16. Titus is near the back of your Bible. It's one of the last of Paul's letters listed here in the New Testament. And if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is inerrant. The word of the Lord is sufficient. And the word of the Lord is authoritative. Titus chapter 1. Verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray that He would add His blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would use your word here and now in our lives, that you would remind us of the great power of your word, power to change, power to bring hope. We ask all of this, O Lord, in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We've been looking together these past few weeks at Paul's letter to Titus. And we looked first a few weeks ago, if you'll recall, back at the great promise of the gospel that Paul reminded Titus and all of us of. How there was hope of eternal life, that the knowledge of God's truth actually changed people and brought about godliness. And that God was the one who was in charge not only of the world, but of each of us and of our salvation. And then we looked last week at the qualifications for elders. And you will recall that we said there was a reason why it was included here. It's not merely a checklist so that we know who should be nominated for office. It had to do with the church. And we're going to see some more of that here today. And I'm going to fill you in on a secret And you may feel compelled to keep it amongst yourselves. But the secret is that the church is not a perfect place. I know you're shocked. People in the church 
are not all perfect. They don't all know everything they should know. They don't all do everything they're supposed to do all of the time. And I know this is what we have come to know and respect, but it is something we must acknowledge as true. That the church is a place full of sinners. And that means that the church is also a place full of conflict. It's not just little sins that show up in the church. It's not just that someone pulled into a parking spot ahead of you. It's not just that someone bumped into you and didn't say, I'm sorry, excuse me. The church is a place where real damage can be done to souls. And this is why Paul went through that long list of what it meant to be an elder. You need men who are lovers of good things, who are hospitable, who are not out for filthy gain, who are not quick-tempered, who are not violent. You need men who have walked the walk because in the church they must also talk the talk. They must put down those in the midst of the church who would seek to destroy her. And this happens not because they are some kind of terrorist or secret special forces for Satan. It happens because they want things for themselves. Notoriety. Gain. A following. And you see, this occurs in the church. There are false teachers in the midst of the church. That means this church, too. And that means that we all must be on guard as to what is involved with this. Because if we're honest with our souls, it may be that we, you, are the false teacher in the church. Not to the extent that Paul talks about, but it may be that you and I have the temptation to do certain of these things that will harm the church. And so we must root it out of our souls by God's grace. We must bathe ourselves in God's word that we can deal with this danger to the church. What I would like us to see this morning about these false teachers are four things. Hopefully, they're easy to remember because today is brought to you by the letter D. Description first, a description of the false teachers. What do they look like? Who are they? Second, the danger of the false teachers, the danger that is presented by them. Thirdly, dealing with false teachers. What are we to do? Are we to just simply stand back and watch the church be destroyed? And then finally, the diagnostic of false teachers. The final test that is determinative as to whether someone is a false teacher or not. Let's begin then by looking at the description of the false teachers. Paul begins here in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, this description is broken out really into two parts. There is the character of these false teachers, and there is the clout that they wield. Kids, clout is a word for power. It could be power with a club or fist, or it could be power with manipulation. So let's look then at their character and their clout. Paul begins, he's not 
mincing any words. Paul would not win the Southern Genteel Award of the Year. He's coming right out and he says, for there are many who are insubordinate. He says, first of all, these men are rebellious. That's what insubordinate means. Not under authority. To be subordinate means under authority. Now, this, I think, begins, especially since we just looked at verses 5 through 9, that they are not under the authority of the church. You see, you must have authority in the church. You must have elders. They must have gifts and be wise for, beginning at verse 10, look back, for this reason we have these elders, and it's because men are there who are insubordinate. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because I think we understand that principle, being under authority. Don't we, kids? We bristle at it sometimes, don't we? We don't like being under mom and dad's authority. We don't like not being able to do what we want to do. And then as we grow, that continues to happen. And sometimes when we reach middle age, we bristle under the authority of our parents who still continue to tell us what to do. And then as we grow older and we need our children to care for us, we bristle at being under their authority in their world. But what really I think the main authority that these men are not under is the authority of the Word of God. That's what they reject. That is what they are marked by. They're not marked by being people who are impolite. These are not men that you can spot because they don't say yes sir. They don't say yes ma'am. These are men that you spot because of the way they treat the Scriptures. They don't want to be under the authority of God's Word. They want to make their own way. They want to be novel. They want to throw off authority. Now, the irony here is that by throwing off the authority of God's Word, they become dictators. Because what then is the authority in their life, in their family, in their job? Well, of course, it's them. They're the ones that are the authority. What they say goes. There is no objective, independent source of authority. If they decide something's important, by golly, it's important. Don't worry about what the Scripture says. I'm in charge here. These are men who are rebellious, who are insubordinate. And it reminds us, Christian, that the only place to find hope is under the authority of God's Word. It seems so ironic that the only place to find freedom is in slavery to Christ. The only place to find real purpose and value is in giving it all to the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's true. And when we don't do that, we become like these rebellious, independent-minded false teachers. And when you are not under God's word for authority, you begin to then do something else. Paul says, they're empty talkers. They've got lots of words. They're very smooth. But this word means there is a, a great amount of words, but not much substance. There's really nothing underlying it. There's so little content. The the best word that I can think to describe it is they are windbags. They're always talking, but never getting to anything. And we all know people like this, don't we? We know people who think they know everything about everything. 
who their opinion always matters, and we should listen to them. And this is not just an adult thing, is it? The place where windbags flourish more than any place else is at the university. Give someone a half a semester of philosophy, and you have never met a more dangerous person in your life. Well, maybe the person who's had a half a semester of psychology. They can solve all of your problems, right? But this is something even the younger among us see. Kids, how many times have you gone to a baseball practice, a basketball practice, or a soccer practice, and someone is telling you how you must kick the ball, how you must catch the ball, the ways you should throw it, the way you should shoot, and you look at them and you say, but you're no good, and, and you don't even practice. Oh, but I know, I, I know. Right? You've seen that, kids, haven't you? But you see, that's what this is about. These type of men, they aren't under authority. They produce a lot of hot air. Now that then reminds us. There's an old proverb that says, better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. And so it is wise not to prattle on about everything. That doesn't mean we all need to be stoic, stiff-lipped. But it means... The Bible gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. James says we should be quick to hear, slow to speak. And so one of the things that is a blessing in the church is those who are willing to hear and listen and who know they don't have all the answers. A third thing about their character is they are dishonest. You see, they are deceivers. And this is two aspects. First, they, they deceive others. The word here in Greek is literally, they are mind deceivers. They are tricksters. They're kind of, they do with words and ideas what you see the guy do on the street with the three-card Monty. They hide the ball. They shift things around. They distract. But you see, more than that, they're also self-deceived because they really believe their own importance. They really believe that they don't need to be under authority. That's their character. What then is their clout? The first thing we see in their clout is a little word in verse 10. Why do we need elders? For there are many. Now, I would like this passage a lot more if it said there were a couple. Occasionally, someone will walk along who? But Paul doesn't say that. Paul says they're all over the place. That's why I can say with confidence that they're in this church. Not because I have anyone in mind, but because they're everywhere, Paul says. People are somewhere on the road of being self-deceived. Paul says we need to be aware of this so that we can go to God's Word and be under authority, so that we can watch our lips, so that we can make sure that we are honest. This is the reason we need elders. Have you ever wondered why, in order to join a church like the blands we saw here this morning, you needed to be interviewed by the session. Now, it's not like an interview for a job. We don't have a checklist where we go in the back and we say, well, I think he'll be helpful. Yeah, and not too much work. Good. Dress is nice. Good. No. The reason is, is that you need someone to come alongside you to encourage you in your profession of faith. To say, we hear what you're saying and we agree with you. Push on. That is necessary because there are many around who are 
initially popular, who seek to talk and to convince and to manipulate others. This is a description of who these false teachers are. The reason it's so important to know who they are and to have them described is because there is a great danger. There is a danger in the false teachers. Two, actually. The first is one of crushing godliness. You know what I mean by crushing, don't you? Kids, have you ever stomped on a particularly big bug or an empty can of soda? You feel that satisfying thud and crunch under your foot? But you see, that's what they seek to do to godliness. They seek to put it underfoot, to crush it. You see, the goal for these false teachers is not growth in themselves or others. It's gain. You see where Paul says that in verse 11? They do this for shameful gain. They teach what they ought not to teach that they might get gain from it. Now that gain is most often, and I think is pointed here to be money, things, wealth. But I think it could also be attention. There are people who want gain where they don't want any of your money, but they want all of your time. They want you to look at them and care about them and listen to them all the time. And if we think about it, it's the exact opposite of what the elder is to be like. Look with me back at verse 7 and 8. An overseer, as God's steward, must be a certain way. He must not be greedy for gain, Paul says. This is, if you'll forgive the coin term, the anti-elder. He is greedy for gain. And he doesn't care if he gets this gain at the ruin of others, because for this gain he will teach what he ought not to teach, because it upsets whole families. Now, I need to kind of color the word upset here for you because we use it now in this context. Oh, my team lost yesterday and I'm upset. No. This doesn't mean I'm a little bit annoyed. I'm a little bit sad. This means these people for gain take families and they rip them apart, turn them upside down and cause their ruin. For gain, they will tell the wife to leave his husband. For gain, they will tell that teenager, you don't have to listen to what your father says. For gain, they will say, you wait till the other person apologizes. You see, they want to rip at the fabric of society because they don't really care. They can make a quick buck. It's almost like, if I can use a modern analogy... These false teachers are the ancient equivalent of bad divorce lawyers. They try and work up the parties against each other, knowing that the litigation will go on longer and they'll make more money. But you see, this is not godliness. It actually crushes and suppresses the growth of godliness in families. And it's not just gain that they want, but look at verse 14. It's also control. You see, what they are doing is devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people 
who turn away from the truth. They want you to obey the commandments of men. That is namely themselves. They want influence for themselves. And this is a sure sign that they are not following the path of godliness. Because how did our Lord Jesus Christ minister to others? Was he trying to get others to obey his word just because he said so? Here we have God himself, God incarnate, and he over and over and over again in the Gospels. When he tells us what we must do, he says, for the scripture says, for the scripture testifies of me, for the father testifies of me. Over and over again, he makes no attempt to barely base his words in his own authority. Instead, he bases that authority in God's word. Who will we follow after? The Lord Jesus Christ or the false teachers? Now, you see, that's pretty stark, isn't it? But when it comes out into how we would live our lives, husbands, will you treat your wives according to God's word? cherish her, to seek her sanctification, to love her sacrificially, according to the commandments of men, macho guys on TV, the Marlboro man, who will you obey? Ladies, will you seek submission, service, love, honor for your husbands? Or will you listen to gossip? And the prattling of people out in the marketplace. Kids, who will you look to for your own authority? Your friends and what they say? What's cool? Or what God says in His Word? You see, we must follow after God's Word because the only other alternative is the commandments of men and there is found slavery and death and being under someone else's thumb. Once you start down the path of the commandments of men, there is no freedom. Because there is many, 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 many. There is much multiplying of the commandments of men. It's not just crushing godliness, though, that these false teachers bring by way of danger. There's also a compromise with the culture. Now, what was the culture like here in Crete? Well, we get a glimpse into it with Paul quoting the Cretan poet Epimenides. You don't need to know how to spell that. You don't even need to know who he is other than this quote here comes from a very famous Greek thinker, Cretan, excuse me, thinker and poet. And he says, you know, it's just like one of your own. A veritable prophet says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, if that weren't enough, Paul follows up with, and you know what? That's true. Now, imagine that being read. <laughs> As a friend of mine pointed out in a commentary, I found this quite funny. Imagine what would happen is if I stood up and I said, I received a letter from a mentor in the faith and he says, now Fred, you know, the people from Houston are all fools. They're cheats. 
and they're dishonorable. And that's true. They're probably sitting in the pews right now. Would you like that? Would you be open to that? Would you find yourself sensitively seeking that? I don't think so. But Paul doesn't want to mince words here. He certifies that this is true, and it's not an exaggeration, because it was so obvious. In Greek, there is a word, kratidzo, to be a Cretan. It means to lie. That's, it's used that way. Cicero, the famous Roman orator, described Cretans this way. He said, they are the type of people for whom highway robbery is honorable. This is not exactly a culture filled with godliness. It's also a pluralistic kind of culture. Everyone has a voice. The Romans have a voice. The Greeks have a voice. The Jews have a voice. It sounds, quite frankly, a lot like our culture. A pluralistic, immoral society. And what these false teachers do is they play to the culture. They play to the laziness of the Cretans. They play to their desire to get away with things. But I want you to understand how they play to it. They don't play to it by encouraging immorality. Do you notice that? The way they play to the culture is by setting up an entire rubric of rules. Don't touch that. Don't eat that. Don't sit there. Don't wear that. No chance are you going there. And they lay rule upon rule upon rule upon rule. And you see, one of the great temptations in an incredible immoral society is to be a legalist, to lay down rule after rule after rule to protect us from immorality. We go beyond the Word of God. So if the Word of God tells us that we are not to lust in our heart, and if we then find that occasionally going into the mall we see people dressed immodestly, we cannot set up a rule that says, thou shalt not go to the mall. Why? Because it's unwise? No. Because it's extra biblical. We can say that you must not lust in your heart. And if that means for you, you shouldn't go to the mall, then don't go to the mall. But don't say that everyone from all time now would be sinning if they go to the mall because that makes you God. Another secret. You're not. Neither am I. And so we must be careful to follow the Word of God. And if we're honest, that does not mean everything goes because the Bible is full of commands. The Bible is full of exhortations. The Bible is full of directives as to what we are to do to be like Jesus Christ. We are not at a lack for guidance. But you see, they were using the culture, they were encouraging the culture through the promotion of man-made rules. Well, if this is so bad, then how do we deal with these false teachers? What do we do with them? Paul has two pretty sharp ways that we should deal with them. The exclamation points in the outline are there intentional. The first is, he says, censor them. Now that is so not America 2011, right? 
As soon as you say censor, no matter what's going on, oh, that's wicked, bad. Paul says, no. He actually says something a bit harsher than that. And then the second thing he says is, chew them out. Don't give them any break. So first he says, censor censor them. There is no freedom of speech for false teachers. Look at what he says in verse 11. They must be silenced. That's a very accurate but clean Bible translation. What is beyond there is literally, if we were to use this in common parlance, we would say, you must shut their mouths, put a muzzle on them, tape a sock in their mouth, would you already? That's literally what the Greek means. Cover their mouth so that no noise comes out of it. You need to stop them from teaching. And what better way to think about stopping false teachers who are evil beasts than to muzzle them? You see, because they have no self-mastery. They know when, they don't know when to stop. They have no off switch. They're savage and malicious like beasts. They're uncontrollable in their greed as lazy gluttons. And Paul says there is no place for freedom of speech in the church. False teaching is like yelling fire in a crowded theater. When you do it, people die. And so do not say to yourself, well, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. We want to see all the sides here before we make a decision. No, we don't. There's one side, God's side. There's what the Bible says. There's no liberty to go off the Bible. There's no liberty to think about various types of speech. Well, how then do we do this silencing? I think really there are two ways. And there are ways that even the youngest amongst us can do. The first is we overwhelm the lie with the truth. That can start in grade school. What do you know about God? Who is this person who claims to be Jesus? Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. And then as we grow in age, as we go into high school, and we go into college, and people try and tell us that, oh, this is a book of fantasies. Or this was written by men who didn't believe in God. It was made up. We stand upon the Word of God. We say, God is true, let all men be liars. But God is true. And we stand with God in our homes and in our workplaces and in society. But the other way that we silence those who speak falsely is provided for us by Paul's friend Peter. In his first letter, chapter 2, verse 15, he says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We silence people by holy living. You want to know the sure fire way to be ignored when you say something? Is to tell someone, this is what you must do. This is how you have to believe. And then your life is a complete and utter mess. They look at you and they say, wait a minute. <laughs> You're saying, this is what I have to do, but then if this is what I'm supposed to do, why are you so messed up? 
Why don't you follow any of the things you say? And you see, that was the Achilles heel of the false teachers. They had all the answers, but none of the life. So Paul says, censor them. But he also says, chew them out. How are we to do this? He says in verse 13, Rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. He says, rebuke them and rebuke them sharply. First, we are to expose their false teaching. Paul does this here. He says these false teachers aren't focused on Jesus. That's sign number one of someone who is a false teacher. Someone who could talk for days on end about the end times, but not for five minutes about Jesus. Someone who can go on and on and on and on about the power of the Holy Spirit never talks about Jesus. Do you see what the emphasis here was for these false teachers? The emphasis was myths. They were focused upon Jewish myths and commands. They were not focused on Jesus Christ. They were promoting legalism, the commands of men, and they were dividing, not uniting. They were breaking up families, breaking up the church. This is a surefire sign of a false teacher. And we need to point that out. You know, if you give that advice to that teen, do you have any idea what that's going to do to that family? Don't listen to him. He's a false teacher. You know, you really need to focus more on Jesus Christ. Why do you talk all and all and all and all the time about esoteric things I never hear you say who Jesus is and why I must believe in Him and why I need forgiveness of sins. You see, we have to point out the false teaching. The other thing we need to expose or point out is the bad behavior. Because false teaching leads to false behavior. Paul does it here. He says they're greedy. They're lazy. They're power-hungry. So, this is your excuse to not be completely Southern. You don't need to be rude. But when someone is so obviously not following the dictates of the Bible, Paul tells you to go alongside them and say, I, Brother, I see what you're doing here, and it's, it's not what God says. It's not good. The way you treat your wife is just not proper, brother. Sister, the way you speak and the gossip that you spread is not good. You need to stop that. You're in danger here. We need to be willing not only to expose false teaching, but to expose false behavior. And Paul says we can do it sharply. Now, this doesn't mean vindictively. It doesn't mean cruelly. It doesn't mean with no tact. What it does mean is that we don't spend time beating around the bush. You know people like that, don't you? They can't say anything in two minutes that could take 15. Or better yet, 60. Because they're afraid they're going to offend someone. They're coming around the barn. You know... Sometimes I have a saying for that. It's someone's trying to tell me something that they need to encourage me, and I can take it. I say, land the plane for me, would you? Just do it. Don't circle the airport again. Just tell me. I need to hear it. 
And I have been benefited and blessed by that. So if you have not been blessed by someone coming alongside and directly pointing out to you areas in which you can grow in Christ, you are not blessed. You are lacking. That's how we encourage one another. Well, this is what we do to deal with false teachers. Lastly and finally, what is the diagnostic of false teachers? We see it, Paul says, in their unclean consciences and in them being unfit for grace. Their consciences are not clean. Paul says this statement that seems a bit odd at first glance in verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now, that doesn't mean that to the people who are pure, they can do anything they want. Thievery is pure. Murder is pure. Drunkenness is pure. Adultery is pure. That's not what that means. What it means is, to those who are morally pure, who have been made right with God and cleansed of all unrighteousness by the work of Jesus Christ, received by faith alone, to them, there is no need to worry about something ceremonially. You don't need to worry about whether you eat shellfish or not whether your clothing has mixed fibers, whether matters that are indifferent are of ultimate importance. You see, what Paul says here is, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, focus upon that, not upon all of these exterior things, because holiness is not found outside the Bible and it is not found externally. You are not holier based on what you are wearing this morning. You are not holier because you follow some 12-step rules that a man made up. Holiness is found in the Scriptures and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, to those who do not know the Lord Jesus, everything is impure because everything they touch is tainted by sin. Paul's being very bold here. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are sinning when you attempt to love your wife. You are sinning when you attempt to obey your parents. You are sinning when you help someone who is an invalid. You are committing an offense against God. Because the only way that beauty, hope, and life is found is in Christ. Now, the great hope here is that that is found in Christ. You see, these false teachers are unfit for grace. They are detestable in their hypocrisy. They're more concerned about what they think than who they are. They are disobedient, Paul says, and that might make us think that life is hopeless, but remember who Paul is talking to. You remember? These Cretans, the liars, the gluttons, the lazy bones, whom God, in His grace, has renewed. Do you see what Paul says? There is a sense in which he is paying a compliment to those Cretans in the church when he says, you know, everyone around you is a gigantic mess, unworthy of grace. 
detestable, liars, gluttons, lazy, but you were that once. Not now. You see, for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has left these things behind. And if you feel, if you think that you are hemmed in around by this, there is an escape, there is a hope, it's found in Christ. He can redeem evil, gluttonous liars like the Cretans. And like you. And like me. That's his business. That's who he is. This is why we must be so aware of the false teachers in our midst. Because the church may be a place where there is danger, but a church is the place where the word of life is found. Seek out that word. Be changed by it. Seek the Lord Jesus Christ today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would remind us that we have great hope. Great hope not only, Lord, that we might have our sins forgiven, but that you might change us, that we might obey your word, that we might give you the glory. Not because of who we are, but because of what you have done. We ask this, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.